This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get delivered to your door for a fraction of the price you'd pay in stores. To learn more now, visit casper.com slash supertrain. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Murbles. How's it going? Good. Do I detect in your voice a, t- a tone? World weariness. No. Yes. I, just, I, I stayed up a little too late watching TV, but I'm good. Mm-hmm. Were you watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? No, but I like that one. Mm-hmm. Were you? No. Oh, no. Nope. I like nope. it better than the second one. Uh, there's everything is better than the second one. Well, and then there's the other one we don't talk about. There's a third one that's even worse. Mm. <clears throat> it's kind of a Godfather three type situation. Um, is it? Let's say you had to watch that or Matrix three for all eternity. You know, I've never seen the the other two Matrix movies, and it seems like there is a strong consensus that they are not very good. And then there's a diehard group that thinks one of them is really pretty good. Oh, really? Yeah. How do you stand? I haven't. I haven't seen the other two Matrix movies either. Mm. You know, it's in that category of like, why listen to another My Bloody Valentine record? No, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's frustrating Although, sometimes. I mean, Matrix is good, but it, but yeah, I was a little bit old. Yeah, I was a little bit old for it. Did I ever did I ever tell you the story of how I saw the Matrix? No, how. This is, uh, it came uh, out in 1998. 1998, that's Mm -hmm. right. Um, I was, uh, I was walking down the street in Seattle, just boop-a-doop-a-doopin'. Come out in 98 or 99? Uh, it might have been mainly in theaters in 99, but I think officially, let me look. I like the, oh, you know what, 99, I stand corrected. There it is, 99. Yep, no, you know what, that's right, that's right. March yeah. 31st, 1999. Oh, March 31st. See, there it is. And uh, I had just learned um, that the Western State Hurricanes were breaking up because uh, we'd gotten back from our South by Southwest trip, and I'd written a bunch of new songs, and I was really excited. And we, we met for our first band practice after we got back from the tour. You know, we got back and we we relaxed and didn't, you know, didn't, get together for a week or two, a couple of weeks. And then it's like, let's get back together, band practice. And we all show up and we've got some shows booked, including our first ever headlining of the show box, a really big deal in Seattle. Wow. And uh, we're in the practice space and we get in there and we, and I'm like, Oh my God, you guys, I've got like four new songs. This is going to be amazing. And the drummer and bass player have been meeting in secret, and they say, and I, uh, let me, let me, let me put this all in my head, because I honestly think that we put our shit on and practiced, we played, and then took a break, and during the break, they said, we're quitting the band. Well, kind of, like kind of buried the lead a little bit there. Yeah, it wasn't even, you know, they didn't like call and leave a voicemail or something. It was just like, (laughs) 
And I said, what are we doing? Why are we, why did you, why did we just practice for an hour and a half? And they're like, oh, well, you know, who knows why they, who knows why they were like they were, but it turned out that they didn't, because we'd gone on this week long tour, 10 day tour, they, uh, they decided they didn't like touring and being in a band because they didn't have their own pillow every night. And they had a job, they had jobs lined up. Uh, the drummer was going to be a copywriter for like a sports equipment company, and the bass player was going to go work at Microsoft or something. And I was pretty mad, but exceptionally sad because I had I had this was this I had staked my hopes on this. You guys, right? you guys had a bullet. You were going places. That's right. But when, they, the West... when they brought it to you, their reluctance to bring it up before practice was not indicative. I'm, they felt strongly about this. This was not something you could negotiate or talk them out of. No, they were pretty smug dudes and uh, thought that they had it all figured out. I mean, they always acted like they had it all figured out, but they had it all figured out here, too. They just, you know, this has been a factor a lot lately for me where you feel like your reality and someone else's reality just aren't sharing the same parameters. Yeah. Like you the two realities don't have a hard time coexisting. And of course they they do. They they are able to coexist. They're here in the world at the same time together. It's June for me and it's June for you. But in their cosmology somehow this breaking up the band didn't preclude continuing to practice mm -hmm. hmm. and i think i think it was because you know we did have a show coming up <laughs> and uh, i see and, that makes sense well except for except to me like the show coming up is the whole point of the show coming up is that it continue our career in the job of playing shows like the show itself isn't isn't you know like it's not that we throw ourselves on the sword and make a sacrifice in order to play this show for itself there's only one reason to play the show and that is to uh continue to play shows although we did end up playing our final show um but i didn't want to uh, suffice to say after they said we we're breaking up the band i didn't want to go back in and practice more <laughs> it's understandable Let's just call it that yeah, yeah. But this whole, like, why is your reality so far from mine thing is really, you know, it's really a moment where you have to break down your reality and mm -hmm. say, where am I missing the piece? Because they're, you know, it can't just be them, right? There's got to, I'm contributing some insanity to this too, have to be. Still can't figure that one out. It makes you wonder um, if, if maybe we... Mostly got lucky for a long time in seeming to have the same reality, and that the Venn diagrams just happened to be like sailing over this same little area of the pool for a long time. You know what I mean? It makes yeah. you kind of wonder, like, I wonder if it's always been this way, and I just never realized it. Yeah, right. Well, and 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 it makes you wonder, like, how is it that I seem to be successfully sharing a single reality with a lot of people? Is that also untrue? Am I? It, is it is it just that I'm in most cases I haven't stumbled into the way and stumbled into the little um, little hole in the ground where all of a sudden 
the vast difference between our realities is revealed. If only there was. Do you see the same green? I know. Could we be in a giant thumbnail? If only there was some kind of a movie that you could have gone to around that time that would help clarify the idea that maybe reality isn't what it seems. So, I'm walking down the street in downtown Seattle. I have no idea why I'm downtown, and I'm just like bummed. I'd had an opportunity to go to South Africa uh, that spring with the University of Washington comparative history of ideas class and we were going to study the truth and reconciliation committee and my advisor jim klaus had said i don't want i I don't want you down there as a as a uh, student i want you to watch the students and then write a book about what happens like it was very thrilling it felt like a super secret spy mission to go do some world historical college work and if i'd done it i would be very collegey right now probably mm-hmm. and i went to the band and i said i have this opportunity to go down there and they said i swear to you this was in october or november of the following year they were like you can't leave dude the band is blowing up you can't just go for go to south africa and expect to come back and the band will still be here waiting how for long, you. how long before the breakup was this well, we broke up in March, and they were saying this to me in October, November. And so I looked at my life at that moment, that crossroads, where I was like, if I go left, I'm going to South Africa to write a book about the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. That seems really heavy and cool, and like what I've been, what I've been aiming toward in my college life for a long time, something mm-hmm. like cool. But if I go right... I'm in a successful, finally in a successful popular band that might have a shot at being rock and roll. And I went to my professor and he was like, well, you know, you got to, this is one of those things you got to choose. And I said, I made the, I made the decision based on the fact that which thing is less likely to be available to you. Uh, which which thing is more strike while the iron's hot, like the the shot of being a rock and rock star or the shot of being a university professor, and it seemed like if you don't take the rock and roll shot when it comes, you're, it's never going to come again. And so I said I couldn't go to South Africa, and I was super bummed. And then we went down to South by Southwest, and we came back, and the band broke up because they got jobs as copywriters, and they didn't like to be on, they didn't like to be in the van. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm walking down the street. I'm super bummed. I'm dragging my feet. And I hear beep, beep. And I turn around, and there's Death Cab for Cutie, the entire band, all in their van. And my re- recollection is that it was like the Scooby Doo van. <laughs> hey, guys. Like they're, they're, it's like a brown, it's a, a root beer brown like 80s Ford van and 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 in my memory they're all four of them hanging out the windows like hey! like, like the Cosby kids <laughs> yeah exactly like they're all they don't fit in the van because they're they have cartoon heads right they're so big that they uh, that they drive with their heads out of the van like here we come walking down your street and they're like what are you doing man and you know they live in Bellingham right so so uh so I'm like, hey guys, uh, the Western State Hurricane breaking up. And they were like, what? Get in the van. 
And so I got in the van and they drove me to Bellingham because there was just nothing, you know, I didn't have anything going on. Yeah. <laughs> drove me to Bellingham and we all went to see The Matrix, which was a movie that I had not even heard of at that point because I hadn't been following the trades. We got we got to the movie theater and they were like, come on, we're going to go see a movie. You know, I was 29 at this point, and they were all 22, 23. So it was, so it was, uh, so I always felt a little bit like, okay, you guys, I'll go to the movies with you. And it was, it was great. And it was great, not necessarily because of the Matrix was great, but because there wasn't anything like that before. And then, and I didn't have any foreshadowing. And I just went into this movie and was, oh, was that's such a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was neat. So I still have a lot of a lot of sentimentality around the first Matrix movie, and I can't separate it from whether or not I think it's a good movie because I suspect that it it, it doesn't acquit with my normal desire for movie narratives to line up. To, you know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I watched it again not too long ago, <clears throat> partly to figure out like when it's going to be appropriate to show this to my kid. Uh, answer not yet um but uh man it's it still looks really good it still feels really good i mean for being as quote unquote old as it is it still feels pretty fresh and it's i mean maybe again maybe i'm just reliving my first you know watching of it but it also it just it still feels like this is one of those movies i don't know what like 2001 or star wars or i don't know there's lots of movies like that where like it's so difficult to when you go back and watch movies that were made after this, you know how like every phone looks like an iPhone now. It's like that, yeah. mo- that movie wasn't just the bullet time. I mean, you know, everything being green had already been going on for a while, but it was just so audacious. The two of them, the Wachowskis, are so audacious about how they present things, and they're they're not above like like a superhero shot of the team coming out the door, and like it's just it's it's <laughs> thrilling. I think it's I think well, it's that, still really good. I I mean, my question to you is. Are all of the Matrix tropes? Do, it, does it have that effect where you watch it and you're like, it it feels uh, it feels cheap because everything that's come subsequently stole from it. Does it feel like a tr- uh, tripe? Trite? Right, right, trite. right. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, bullet time uh, filming became kind of a fad, but yeah. it doesn't hurt that they that it was used in the service of the story so well, like that in the sort of like pre credit scene when they're about to find um, Carrie Moss and she's just standing in that room, like staring. And then, you know, she just starts kicking the shit out of everybody. And like, it's, it's, I think it still looks fantastic. It's, it's a weird, audacious movie. I mean, maybe a little bit, I mean, in a different way, sort of like guardians of the galaxy. We were like, you know, if, if you told somebody this story, you go, hmm, all right, whatever. But it's the implementation. It's just, it's so well implemented. I don't, I, I don't think it feels dated at all. I think there's a lot of like, Mumblecore from the last ten years that has aged a lot more poorly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um. Uh. You're talking about Mumblecore, which is a Seattle invention, and we take that very personally. <laughs> Sorry, I did not mean to culturally appropriate your mumbling. <laughs> um. Tell me very briefly, with no spoiler alerts, because I know how passionately people feel about spoilers. Mm. Um. Tell me how you feel about the most recent Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which I have to assume you saw on opening day. We saw it pretty early on. Well, I, you know, I went in with 
as much as I tried to mute my expectations, they were still impossibly high because of how yeah. thoroughly I enjoyed the first one. I remember you talking about it. I remember, what, two, three years ago when you mentioned you saw it, and I didn't even want to hear what you thought because I was scared you wouldn't like it and I'd be sad. You know, it, it's one of those, I, I feel like there's, I've been struggling for a while now to come up with a name for certain kinds of media properties. You, you can't even really discuss rationally or intellectually where you're like for an obvious example the smiths right or it's like you know just give me that one like i'm not gonna i'm not trying to persuade you to like this but this is a thing that i like and that's just how how it is With you tried fun, to persuade me to like the smiths for a long time i don't think i i think i tried to correct you on how wrong you are about the smiths but i don't think i wanted you to like become a super fan but uh i i went into it and i thought you know it um there's there's a, there's several things about it on several levels that I didn't love. Mm-hmm. One of which was like the team being split up, like a lot of the fun for most of the movie, the team's not together, which works sometimes, like in like a Rogue One, like that makes sense. But like you know, I um, or you know any of the Star Wars movies, you go off and have your little side adventures and stuff, but you eventually get back together and yeah, get the team together. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, but I mean a lot of what I mean. They have their reasons for making it the way they did, but it had a lot of the 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 pixie dust that made the first one special. Like the whole opening sequence with Groot dancing around is is really cute. I think Groot's cuteness is a little bit overused, and I'm a big Groot fan. No, the, mm-hmm. by, by and large, I thought it was good. I thought it was good, but it's I I'm damning it with faint praise because I like the first one so much. And and the the basic test for all these kinds of things. This goes for Pixar. This goes for Miyazaki. This goes for any of these Marvel movies, especially with genre movies, it really comes down to how much I think about it after I leave the theater. And I just, I can't even remember a lot of what happened in the movie. And I was yeah. absolutely paying attention. It just, it didn't, it didn't feel, you know, it's, it, there's this irony, especially in superhero movies about like, like the bigness of the adventure is not always, um, you know, the big highness of the stakes does not always pay off in how it gets rolled out. And so, like, for example, the Netflix shows, like Daredevil, the stakes are smaller, but you're way more invested. So, I don't know, I'm kind of mm. rambling, but, like, I, w- I wanted to love it as much as I love the first one, which is such a high bar, but I thought it was merely good. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. about you? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my experience of the first one was going in, again, with some, you know, some group of, of 22-year-olds in a van pulled up and said, let's go to the movie! I don't remember which band it was. And I was like, all right, I'll go to the movies with you. Some kind of superhero movie. And I had never, here's the thing, right? I don't, I'm such a, uh, such a non-participator in Marvel comics culture that I had never heard of Guardians of the Galaxy. I had never heard of any of the characters in it or any of the tangential characters. I did not have any, I had nothing. I, it was like Guardians of the Galaxy, okay, <laughs> whatever you say. And I honestly, even after I left the theater and for maybe a couple of weeks afterwards, I thought it was a completely discreet creation. Like they had invented those characters for the purposes of this movie only. I didn't realize it preexisted right, right, right. As, a, as a comic book, I guess, right? I think even, even a fairly ardent reader of comics over the years would describe them as probably at best obscure. There, it's right. definitely not like an Iron Man kind of, you know, A-level set of characters. But, I mean, and, and the team's changed over time. And, the, like, I don't think it's one of those things like Alpha Flight. Like, how many people besides, you know, Wolverine can people name from Alpha Flight? <laughs> name the last three items. <laughs> but, no, just in the sense that, like, it was not, it was, it really felt like a, um, 
like a Hail Mary in terms of bringing up these characters that the Garden Variety comic fan is not familiar with and the Garden Variety comic movie fan has probably never heard of and couldn't pick out of a lineup. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, where is the, on paper, like, how is this going to be, how, how is anybody going to identify with this? Or, you know, like, where is the, how is this a franchise, right? Right. And, and, and I want, and, and the movie starts out and here the, the guy comes with his goggles and he, and he puts his cassette bow, player bow, on it, <laughs> starts dancing. <laughs> and, and initially I was like, oh, this is going to be this, huh? This, here's where we are. Well, the the, the, the doing... open, the, the kind of the cold open is the flashback, which was brutal. I mean, oh, I was oh, like, oh, oh, oh my gosh, God. I hope the rest of the movie isn't going to be this rough. Right. That's right. Okay. So the, I guess that did that cold open got me in. It was like the cold open of uh, of Inglorious Bastards, oh, gosh. where I where I really did feel like this movie is going to be really hardcore and and good because both cold opens fantastic right just like what am i watching yeah and then the then the cassette thing and i was like okay 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 but then even that scene by 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 three quarters of the way through i was like oh this is not bad this is good and guardians of the galaxy was such a thrill ride for me because i couldn't believe that there were people this smart and funny that were making movies it just didn't seem it didn't seem possible Given how it's like they got the wrong room assignment. Like, wait a minute, yeah. you sure you're supposed to be in here? Shouldn't you be in yeah. like uh, French New Wave? <laughs> there are hundreds of thousands of people in Hollywood making movies all the time, and I and none of them come up with anything close to this in terms of script, in terms of you know whoever the continuity people were, they were good. You know that's the thing about continuity, right? They're so unsung because if they're doing their job, you don't notice them. It's only the ones that are not doing. It's only the script doctors that are not thinking about whether or not their shit makes sense that stand out. So this is just like, ah, I fell in love with the raccoon. I didn't even understand Groot. I didn't understand the whole, right. like, why is this tree even in this? But it was, he's wonderful. He's a really sweet tree who occasionally becomes incredibly violent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I identified with everybody in the movie and... And so when Guardians of the Galaxy 2 started coming out, when that's, they started to roll it out, I I did that. I got spooked. I was like, no, 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 no. How are you going to do this? This is, you know, you're going to screw this up, I bet, Hollywood, aren't you? Aren't you, Hollywood? Yeah. And then as it got closer and closer and everybody was so hyped up, I was like, I've seen this before. I remember when you were waiting in line for the Phantom Menace, you dumb people. Mm-hmm. Don't do this to yourselves. Well, and a similar so I feeling. Sat- my, my friend Dan Morin tells the story about like how he'd wondered if he'd ever see. He's you know ten, maybe ten years younger than me, maybe more. But he uh, he had wondered if there'd ever be another Star Wars in his lifetime, and he saw it like three times in one weekend. Mm. And each time he was like, "That was good, right?" Like he's you go trying that, to figure that, it out. <laughs> yeah, you go through that thing where you're like, "It must be me." I mean, this is George mm-hmm. Lucas. George Lucas is the Force, man. Like this is. <laughs> right. I, I must be missing something. I should keep going back to this movie until I get that it right. Was good, right. That was good, right? right? Hey, you guys, right? And everybody's like, uh, yeah. Um, I was like that when I went to see Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because it had everything. Mm-hmm. It had every, It had Sam Rockwell, who I think is the greatest. He's the greatest living actor. Everything like, he's in. We watched Iron Man 2 uh, a couple times in the last week, which I think is a highly underrated movie. And, you know, it's weird that they bring his character in so late in that movie, but like everything he's in, the moment he appears on screen, the movie just comes alive. He, Sam Rockwell yeah. is so entertaining. 
He's so great. He's the one Hollywood actor. I'm I'm pretty confident when I say he is the one single Hollywood actor that I would actually want to meet. Hmm. That I you know that I would be like if somebody said we're going to go meet Sam Rockwell, I would be like, "Oh, oh, 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 okay. okay. I'm I'm cool." You know, like I would be <laughs> I'm not I not be, going. <laughs> I would be I would be weird, right? He's the one guy I would be weird, and I, and my sense is he's he's not he's not one of those in, like dumb intense Hollywood actors where he's out crashing his car or he's like swanning around being intense, but he does feel like somebody who who uh, I just I feel like he's probably a pretty intense dude. I I'm maybe one day fate the fates will bring us together and Sam Rockwell and I will be. Able to carry on a conversation because I would be I would look forward to it because I just love I just love him I love his face I love his voice I love everything every time he's in a movie whenever he's in the Did movie you... he's really in the movie without handing yes. it up but he is such a presence somebody I mean on a completely different angle like Melissa McCarthy or like whatever material she is given and it is certainly not always great like I feel like she just brings it alive and I just want to watch what she does next and I, I think he's like that in a movie like Moon I mean how many people could pull off a movie that crazy it's it's such a well, without no spoilers, but it's a very strange movie. But uh, yeah. I, yeah, I totally agree. But he okay. So we're we're, we're on. Um, oh, Hitchhiker's Guide, and you got uh, you got oh, Tim yeah. from The Office. Mm-hmm. You Tim got, from uh, The Office, who's the best guy in The Office? I thought. Oh, absolutely. And you got Severus Snape as the voice of uh, Marvin, right? Yep, yep. Is Marvin, that right? Alan and Rickman? then you got... Alan Rickman the uh, uh, Marvin. Oh, I, uh, Alan Rickman is in the movie, isn't he? Hmm. As a as a face character, I don't know. Or I am think... I thinking of? I think he's Marvin. I'm looking it up. There is there is a superhero movie or some kind of movie where he's in a space suit. He's in uh, Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. Which is a that's very it. amusing movie. That's it. That's it. 2005. Another, movie, another high concept movie, that Galaxy Quest, where it's like, you guys came up with an idea. That's good. Boy, this is a heck of uh, a... You got, uh, you got Zooey Deschanel yeah, in it. You got you Martin got, from Stephen Fry. Richard mm-hmm. Griffiths, so that's uh, Vernon Dursley, is in it. Because, of course, <laughs> I judge everything by who they were in a Harry Potter movie. Looks like he got some <laughs> Malkovich. I've never seen it. I love the book. My daughter and I have read the book. Um, oh, you've never seen Hitchhiker's Guide, the movie? No, I've heard some of the radio play from back in the day. But I just, the movie, I don't know, is scared. You know the feeling. Well, the book, yeah, the book has such a tenor right it just has such a like any any anything can happen they just he just describes it so well and you're like you know i don't even want to see what a vogon looks like just just keep describing all of that stuff yeah and it's tried there have been attempts made to adapt it for a long time as you know radio play and the everything right tv show the cereal box the um and it's never 100% 100% succeeded, and here was this movie with all these perfect, just the perfect cast. I couldn't have done a better job of putting this movie together. Yep. And no spoilers, but it is like just a, it's a turd in a punch bowl. Is it? Is it? Is it's, it pretty leaden? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. There's no, there's no, where's the lightness? Like, this is supposed to be hilarious, and it there's everybody's just walking around mugging and there's no there's no joy in mudville and ugh that was one where i did go in with pretty high expectations and halfway through the movie i said this is no good 
this is no good. This is like uh, this is like every Quentin Tarantino movie of the last ten years. No good. I have a friend <laughs> who is a uh, comic writer, and uh, one of his comics. Uh, have you seen that trailer for Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron? No, I like Charlize. Charlize Theron, Theron like kicking butt in Berlin in the late eighties. Go, go seek no. it out. It's really good. But but so anyway, that's kind of cool. Awesome. His his comic, um, The Coldest City, is uh, has been made into a movie that comes out soon. But but he has done he's done all kinds of different work, um, including adaptations. And, oh yeah. And he has yeah, he has some interesting thoughts on it. I'm, I'm I'm always interested to hear this kind of stuff from someone who actually does it versus somebody who just reckons how it should go. So like you know, don't ask most comic fans how you would make that into a movie. You have no you have no context for that. You have your I mean you may, but you mainly have your very strong, you know, uh, emotional feelings like what to leave in, what to leave out, a lot like a Bob Seger song. <laughs> <laughs> against the wind, still running against the wind. Um, but but you know it's and one of the interesting thoughts he has is that like you know he's not. This is, sounds obvious, but it's so important. He's not against changing the story. Like you've got to adapt to this medium. There's all kinds of stuff that you have to. There may be characters you have to add. There may be characters you have to combine. There may be things. And like it's it's such an artful thing. And look no further uh, than our friend uh, Coppola, the Godfather. The first Godfather book, which I read most of, is fine. But it's, it's fine, right? It's not the movie that you see on screen. It's the result of right. a fantastic collaboration. Adaptation, obviously, the talent. I mean, it's, you know, what they say, success has a thousand fathers and failures and orphan. It's, but, you know, it takes so many people to take something from one medium into another. And if, you're, if it isn't just a naked cash grab, we're trying to cash in on, you know, like, oh, the popularity of Bratz dolls. Let's make a movie. You know, there's something very artful and special. And then on top of it, it's not even like you're like an up and coming indie director who wants to make something like like Primer. Like, let's say you've got or Primer, as you say, like if you've if you've got to this God, people in comics suffer from this. You go in with all this weight of expectations. I mean, can you imagine being Joss Whedon and going into like the troubled Avengers project and then like taking over? Like that's mm. it's incredibly difficult. There's just there's so many requirements and so many boxes to tick, and then on top of all of that, you have to make it. Even if you had like an in, like I say with an indie film, there's a chance you could get it through a small version of the machine intact. But like imagine that extra level of difficulty of having to make it an adaptation that survives all that stuff, where you've like very carefully you put put together this thing that's like almost like a house of cards of character and plot, and we have this much budget. Like, you know, like in the Hulk movie, we can only show the Hulk this much because we don't have that much money, et cetera, et cetera. So I just, I have a lot of admiration for people who pull it off because like you said, if it worked well, you don't notice why it was great. And if it doesn't work well, all you can do is obsess about what they should have done differently. Yeah. And I, I feel like there are two, you touched on two things, right? And one of them is the, the classic thing that we had that we learned in the music recording business which is that the more people from the head office that come down to your recording session, the more they are going to destroy what you're doing. It's all they can do is destroy what you're doing. All they have is the power of subtraction. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so on mixing boards in studios all over the world, there are, and I swear this is both done for comedic effect and also absolutely true. There are little sections of mixing boards where the, where things are like disconnected and when some when an A&R guy or somebody from the label comes and wants to contribute a really good producer will say hey 
here is this section, you know, they're like, why don't we bring the bass up? Why don't we take the tambourine down? Why don't we change the, and he'll actually put his hands on some knobs and say here, you know, like, as the mix is going by, can you make those adjustments here on these four knobs? And let the me, knobs let are me not demonstrate for you. Connected. Yeah. <laughs> the knobs are not connected to anything. And the ANR the guy will sit there and make these minor, minor adjustments on, on blank knobs and be like, there, like that. And everybody's like, whoa, yes, thank you. It really, and then, really like, sweetens up the sound. Yeah, you, you did it, man. You found the sweet spot. Anyway, thanks for stopping by. And I think to... To be in Hollywood and to keep your thing alive, you have to be very good at that type of thing, where you're, where you're, a little bit of misdirection of the, of the A and R guy, where there's all these people from the theater, the the studio that are like, you know what would be great is if the if there was a, like a little kid, like a precocious little kid that wears glasses that like says funny stuff, and you go, that is a great idea, here, you know, like. What if we made that kid a full-grown adult who didn't ever say anything funny? What about that? That was your idea. And the guy's like, amazing. <laughs> so I think there's, you've got to be able to do that and not do what I do, which is like, what? Get the fuck out of here. You know, because that's the way that you lose. That's the way you lose. Right? you, you got to give them some kind of a, you know, like when you got a computer, you have something called the heat sink, right? Like you need mm, to give them sink. an input sink. You need to give them some kind of a way to have input without unintentionally, you know, doing something destructive. But you also need to not, it seems to me, you also need to not make it like, wow, keep coming back because we could sure use lots more of your tips and tricks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you do it, particularly when you've got people in Hollywood or in business who really think they're, they're hot. And who are smart enough that they have gotten where they've gotten. So they're not just, you can't just misdirect them, like throw a tennis ball down the hall and like, hey, go get it, boy. You know, you've got to, it's the, it's these guys that we're always talking about, right? The, the like, the middle-aged dude who never thought, who, who thinks he's amazing. <laughs> and that's, right, right, that's right. who you have to find a way to like, Give him something real that they know because they're on the lookout for you to give them a button that doesn't work. Right. They they're they that's how they that that's part of their identity is like they're nobody's fool. So how you contend with them in a Hollywood situation, I don't know. But that's less interesting to me than the other thing that you were touching on, which is somehow to maintain to, and I then the, the word outsider is is so overused that we that we forget that it originally had a meaning. But like, how to maintain the perspective of a child through a massive undertaking like this? How to maintain that the simplicity of like, does this work or not? Does this make me laugh or not? Does this do I understand this or not? And mm. not get not get broken up into all these sort of like here's a vignette we're working on this vignette and how it fits into the rest of the movie we don't care how it you know like we've got a team working on this vignette and they're honing it and everything they add or take away is actually screwing up how it fits into the film but right. no one's no one is coordinating it no one is there's no executive here 
because this has all been balkanized by someone up up higher who's like, you know what we need? We need to bring in an action guy for this scene. We need to bring in the script writers from this action film to put more action into this scene in this comedy or, you know, and I, and I've hit on this in other topics too, talking to you, which is that at a certain point, expertise can be the enemy. We, we are so, Mm. you know, we fetishize expertise in this culture. And so all of our teachers are people who have pursued like an education uh, trajectory in their own education. Yeah. And all of our designers have pursued designing extensively, exclusively. And we have eliminated so much the, the sense that what the world needs is people educated broadly. And in a film especially, I feel like there should be someone working in the working on a film that doesn't know anything about film right that that hasn't read the 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 book you know that's just a a reader and a knowledgeable person who you run things by and go what is this how does this i mean it's basically like running it by your dad or you know or like in my case your mom where you're like mom does this scan and mom's like who is the who's the one in the hat i'm like oh right Right, right. Because when I wrote it, I put in all this uh, explication about the one in the hat, and then I took it out in a subsequent edit. But the one in the hat is still in the movie. It doesn't make any sense because he because the the backstory got edited out. Thanks, mom. Mm-hmm. Like a little bit of a sanity but, check. Yeah, but how do you go into a business situation and say and and make a case for someone who isn't an expert? Make a case right. for the the input of someone where you all you're saying about them is I trust this person. Here I, bet you, is a, I bet you a lot of directors and showrunners in TV have their own kind of brain trust that they can run stuff by, you know, mm-hmm. that you wouldn't need necessarily somebody who's just like an absolute beginner. But but I take your point. The, the other the, one other challenge of expertise uh, that can I like, be I like that absolute beginners uh, drop in there. That was you like that. Nice. The uh, the other thing with expertise is though there's so many levels to expertise. You know, like starting at the end, of, there's on the one end you start out not knowing what you don't even know you need to know or not know. Like there's this there's the you know the total zero. I don't even know anything about this thing. And of course you move up and up and up. But even if you become very very good at something, I think it's still important to understand where your expertise is appropriate. And, you know, where your expertise applies, where your expertise can be use, useful, or or where your confidence, conversely, where your confidence in your own expertise might be a cataract that, it, that causes you to start trying to solve a problem that you've been comfortable solving before, to where you're almost like somebody who, let's say you're a TV critic who's watched thousands of hours of reality cooking shows and like you know them backwards and forwards and so what do you do you like walk into the kitchen and like here's the name of a pasta that you know that you say they should throw in the soup or you know what i mean like oh one time they went on top chef top chef with this the part of expertise is also knowing when to say like no i don't really know about this like you know what i mean that that i don't Mm -hmm. have to have you know i don't need to put my fingers on the faders in order to have an influence on how this works that there should be a way that i can adjust what i know and what i've learned to 
deploy that in a way that's useful and positive rather than something that's just there for you to be able to put a mark on it. And, and, and this is something that I, this is, I think you're at the crux, right? Where if you have tremendous accomplishment and you have made your bones and you, and, and you are already a hero in your craft and then you can be, <clears throat> then you can be a character that, uh, that sits in the back of the room with sunglasses on, maybe asleep, maybe not. While the whole thing goes and you are thinking to yourself, this is all going well. It does not need my intervention. And you can get away with it because people are like, well, it's the master, right? The, and so so that hands-offness is, I mean, Quincy Jones presumably does not sit in a chair and and or, or doesn't jump up out of his chair and go move the, the, the 57 on the snare. Yeah, he's, he's the producer. Inches. He's not the engineer. Right. But, but, you know, you'd be surprised, right? At at the number of, and so there are those people that you understand, right? That, that, um, Carol King is not going to say, she's not going to be down in the deep in the weeds if something's going well, right? She's not going to screw up something. Um, but then there's the vast majority of people in the middle of their profession who in a lot of ways, you know, people are gunning for their job. There's a lot of, there's competition. They're in the mix and they're at a stage in their career where people are like, are you the, are you a genius? Are you the next genius? And there's got to be so much pressure on them to look like they're working basically. Right. right? It's got to be so hard for somebody in the middle of a creative career. <laughs> business, business, business. Yeah. Right. Just to, to be like, no, this is going well. And what, what I need, you know, what a great director does is not mess with success or, you know, like, and so that accounts, I think for the, the giant jumble of garbage. That's like that, you know, the, the gyre, the, the gyre of plastic that's in the, that's rotating around the Pacific that we call our mainstream culture. But it's those creatives. I just used the word creative. Right, no, it's okay. You get a freebie. You get one. Um, it's it's the people that from a very young age have the confidence to be sparing from a from you know throughout their career. Like if when I think about Prince being a teenager, walking around Minneapolis. Here's teenage prince walking around Minneapolis and he's going to like open mics and he's in the, his high school band and he's you know like he was a high schooler right prince didn't fall from the sky he was just another weird kid with pimples he's a weird kid with pimples who's like practicing the guitar in on his bed nobody sees prince coming um but from the very beginning, he had the confidence to be Prince because there, there aren't like seven Prince albums where he's trying to figure it out. Right. You know, he's like, he hit the ground pretty, pretty running mm-hmm. and doing all these things. Like I was listening to, I was listening to a track, a Prince track yesterday where he's like, he has pre delay. Right. When I forget, I'm, I'm blanking on the tune, but like the vocal melody. Oh, it's a it's little red Corvette mm-hmm. um, where there's where there's. Oh, a, it's on the bridge. Yeah, there's a pre echo. Yeah. Of the on, the, on the verge vocal. of being obscene. That part on the verge, on the verge of being obscene. Yeah. And it's like, what? the what? 
I mean, that's so natural and so beautiful and so wonderful. And I'm, I'm sure Prince didn't invent it, but, <coughs> and, and, uh, let me see what, what is the, what is the explanation for it? I remember, I remember hearing it described how it was discovered, which was that, um, when the tape reel, when the, when the, the tune is being wound back on the tape reel, there's a little bleed and there's a little bleed through the tape or on the tape where you get this pre delay. Um, because the, you know, the part actually is like sort of ghosts into the track. I think that's true on old, on old, uh, recording media. Wow. But, but this is not, this isn't bleed. This was an intentional thing where he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And, and he was, he was young enough then, I guess. And there weren't as many eyes on him that he could get away with it. There wasn't somebody like, wait, 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 Prince. That's a little crazy. Um, that those people, the people that that don't second guess themselves, or if they do, they just they there's a voice of confidence in them. Maybe kind of Neil they, Young, Neil Young to an extent, because he's like whatever yeah. he's doing in the past, he's pot committed on whatever that album is. My God, have you seen that footage of him on German television or whatever it is, Dutch television? Have I sent you those links? It's just him playing solo. Him playing solo. I've seen ones from around the time between. Um, not comes a time. What's the one? What's my favorite album after the Gold Rush, but before mm-hmm. Harvest? Where he's like playing songs from Harvest. I've seen a bunch of footage from that era. That's like pretty stunning. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. He's 22 years old. And yeah. He's sitting on a chair and he's like, he looks this like is the new he, one. He looks like looks like he's from the young ones. He's just, <laughs> just <that laughs> long hair and just. And he's like, this is a new one I wrote. It's called Old Man. It's about a guy that lives in my farm. And he plays it on the acoustic guitar, and it's complete. Right. It's. It is a complete work. It's not like he's <clears throat> it's not like he's working on it. And that record's not out. And just him and a guitar, <clears throat> it's all there. You know, you don't there there isn't a banjo part, there isn't a backing vocal, but it doesn't matter because and, and you know, and I'm I'm not just in awe. I, I'm not just watching this and going like, whoa, because I know this song backwards and forwards and I and I don't have the ability to distinguish my own love of the thing from the actual thing. Like I'm, I am capable of looking at that and saying that is actually phenomenal. Um, and his parts are simple. This is the the wonderful thing about, about truly great stuff. It's just simple. It'd be easy to play, but there it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a masterpiece. And he's just this young, like dirt in his hair, Canadian, that's the least likely part. Yep. With his with his bowl haircut, driving around <clears throat> Hollywood in a Cadillac hearse. Like, what the hell? What what so so that those those people, and then on the far, far end of the spectrum, you've got Neil Young now, who's 75, who in a way, the fact that he has never answered to anybody and doesn't have to answer to anybody, maybe is a maybe is acting now slightly as a little bit of a deficit on him, just mm-hmm. because he's um, because if he decided he was going to wear clown shoes uh, now, like everybody would be like, amazing, amazing, Neil, and he'd be like, yeah, 
But it's it's for those of us in the in the broad middle, the giant the giant pile of us in the middle who are like, I'm working here, I'm working. <laughs> when I listen to the Long Winters records, I put everything on them because if I came up with a with a shaker part, I would want it on there. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, you know what this track doesn't have? A harpsichord. It's not like, what does this track need? A harpsichord. It's like, what does this track not have? A harpsichord. Hmm. And so there are a lot of melodies going on in tunes that are all very, I think, satisfying. And when you listen to them on headphones, it's fun. But it doesn't have that... um, Maybe that doesn't always serve the song as much as you would hope. Well, or what five melodies do is not five times better than one great melody. That's that's a good way to put it. Well, like we had with Sgt. Pepper, like once you start stripping the layers away, you know, you appreciate so much more of what's actually there. mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of those decisions, a lot of those decisions seem probably simple at the time, which is George went, George Harrison went, boop. And they're like, it's done. And you listen to it now and you're like, that's the part? Yeah. What 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 was how did they decide? They've only got four tracks. There's a lot of did, there's a lot of things like that when you listen to those the raw tracks. There's a lot of stuff where you're like, wow. Can't believe that's what they went with. And it totally worked. I was listening the other day to so um uh still trying to figure out the Chris Cornell situation. Hmm. Still spending some not inconsiderable amount of time in the middle of the night uh, staring at at the ceiling above my bathtub um, and going, what now? What am I? What? What's my takeaway here? But so I I was listening to uh, Burden in My Hand, which is a a really wonderful song. And Burden in My Hand has a has the feeling in the um, in the pre-chorus and chorus of this bass part that is just phenomenal. And it's not, when you're listening to the entire track, you can't quite pick out exactly what the bass is doing, but it sounds like a super-duper grunge bass. Like, and there's a lot of, like, guitar and stuff going on, and there's this sound garden-y polyrhythms. But Ben Shepard, the, the bass player of... Uh, of Soundgarden is a local legend here. He's a, you know, he's legendarily like intense guy. I've uh, known him tangentially for many years. Uh, and he's one of the very few people who scares the shit out of me. He just scares. <laughs> sh- just. <laughs> this episode of Roderick on the line is brought to you by Casper. You can learn more about Casper right now by visiting casper.com slash supertrain. Here's the thing. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. Casper has created one perfect mattress that it sells directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven and inflated prices. Casper's award-winning mattress was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets, An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. So it's no surprise they have an average of 4.8 stars across more than 30,000 online reviews. Jiminy Christmas. Their San Francisco research and development team have developed a proprietary foam that relieves pressure and increases 
airflow. And they combine it with a springy comfort layer to contour to your body and to keep you cool. That means Casper mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Casper makes quality mattresses at a great price, and they are designed and developed in America. They've cut the hassle and the cost of dealing with showrooms and are passing those savings directly onto you, the sleep desirous consumer. I know whereof I speak because I have slept on a Casper for low these many nights for years now. My daughter has a Casper. My wife and I have a Casper. My cat does not have a Casper because we just don't like her that much yet. Buying a Casper mattress is so easy and it is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns to the U.S., Canada, and now the U.K. too. With Casper, you can actually get to sleep on their mattress before you make your decision. How crazy is that? You just go, you try it out for 100 nights and decide if it's the mattress for you, right? Do you want to spend a third of your life on this thing? Well, sleep on it. Find out. And if you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you everything. Crazy Town Banana Pants. Casper, you guys. Casper. And right now, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash supertrain and using the very special offer code supertrain. Terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to Casper for supporting Roderick on the line and all the great shows. Scares the shit out of me. He's a he's a big guy, and he is just he, his intensity is up there to the to the point of like hello, scary guy. But I had a good friend who worked uh, who was uh, oh you know Mike Squires yeah. you know Mike Squires mm-hmm. all, all our listeners know Mike Squires. A uh, guitar player of Duff McKagan's Loaded. They were on tour uh, at a certain point a long time ago, and he met Zach Wilde for the first time. And Mike was a Mar- in the Marines. Mike is somebody who grew up in an intense environment where, uh, you know, you had to really be on your toes. And he met Zach Wilde and, you know, and tried to, like, josh with him, like, hey, you know, what's up, ding-a-linger? I don't know. Tried to be like Mike Squires about it. And um, and Mike reported back to me that the one guy in the the one guy that scares the shit out of him is Zach Wild, and he didn't want to he didn't want a monkey with Zach Wild, mm-hmm. which seemed like a reasonable approach to take to Zach Wild. He's also a very big man, and um, and impressive. Now my my good friend Andrew McKeg, who uh, now is the tour manager of the Experience Hendrix show. Which tours the world with uh, with like a all star cast, like Ringo Starr's all star band, except playing Jimi Hendrix music. Mm, wow! And Zach Zach Wild is in that band, and he Zach and Andrew now are thick as thieves. They they like post videos of each other on Instagram, like 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 it's pretty great, pretty rock and roll great. So I'm no longer um, I'm no longer worried about meeting Zach Wild because I feel like I have an in. I can say I'm good friends with Andrew. Also, Merlin, this may surprise you to know, hmm. but my understanding, it's I'm just remembering now, is that Zach Wilde's manager listens, maybe listens to this program. Get out of town. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's true. Or, or at least at one point was. Huh. Anyway, Ben Shepard has always scared the shit out of me. And he's one of those guys that would s- just stare at you from across yeah. a room. That's not good. Like, That's not good. You're like, you're like, Hi. And he just keeps just like staring. But anyway, so there's this bass line in the song Burden in My Hand that for years I wanted to tease out, wanted to figure out what's going on. And so the other day I was like, I 
bet you there's something on the internet about this. And I'm surprised often when there is not something on the internet about a thing. It feels like you're doing this, it wrong. This ha- this got to happen to you. Mm-hmm. In my neighborhood, I, I feel like I'm about to talk about some. I'm about to talk about a dream, mm. but it's not a dream. In my neighborhood, there is someone, and I'm going to say, I'm pretty confident that it's a guy. This someone who late, late at night walks around setting off sticks of dynamite. Mm. Have I talked about this before? I don't think so. I mean, they're not cherry bombs. They are... There's like some significant boomy bottom end. So, because I'm up late at night, I'm lying in bed, and some nights I'll hear it all the way across the neighborhood, like on the far, far, far side of the neighborhood, three o'clock in the morning. And it's loud, but you can tell it's also very distant. And then other times I will hear it nearby. Boom. So that the, the windows rattle. My God. Middle of the night. And some nights I hear two and maybe once even heard three of these explosions in a single night and heard them at a distance, but moving like there was one. And then 45 minutes later, there was another one over there. And then, you know, an hour later, there was another one way over there. Were you awake the whole time or were they waking you up? No, I'm, I'm up. I'm up. Okay. All right. Oh, that's even weirder. And this person that I think is probably a guy is also a plate. Mm-hmm. But one time I was sitting in my bedroom in my house and a stick of dynamite went out off in the street in front of my house. And I saw the flash through the windows. It rattled the entire house. It rattled my teeth. It rattled... It was like a stick, well, a stick of dynamite in front of your house. Yeah, yeah. Kaboom! You know, just like, and you're not expecting it. No. Right? There's no like five, four. It's just like, and so I leap. Typically, you give a fella a fire in the hole before you do something like that. Yeah. And it's the middle of the goddamn night, you know, 3 a.m. And it's only that I'm just sitting here um, sorting my cufflinks into boxes that I was awake and saw the flash. And so, of course, I sprinted downstairs in my underpants, sprinted out the front door. The entire street is full of black powder smoke. There's, like, shit floating in the air, like paper and shit floating in the air. And I run out into the middle, and there's, you know, this big black spot on on the pavement. And I'm in the middle of the street, and I'm in my, like... I didn't even have the forethought to take a fencing saber with me. I'm just like, I am ready to fight whatever mountain lion, whatever human or mountain lion in human shape just thinks that this is a good plan. And I'm out in the middle of the street and there's no one. And I'm looking and I'm looking and then nobody else is running out in their underwear. No, but there's definitely smoke. Oh, the street is full of smoke. I mean, 
and the and the smoke cloud is thirty feet high. I mean, it's like a well, it's like a bomb went off. And two blocks down, there is a solitary figure dressed in black. And just before, and he's at the corner two blocks down. And just before he turns, he turns and stops and looks back at me. And I'm standing in my underwear in the middle of his smoke cloud. And it, so this, this bomb had to have been on a long fuse because he's not running. He's fully two blocks away and lit this either with a, with a fuse, a lit fuse or on some kind of timer, or I don't think a remote detonator of some Mm -hmm. kind, but like to put a thing to set off something like this in front of, in just a neighborhood street is one thing, but to light it and walk away two blocks away, you have no idea who's going to come along, right? You could be a block and a half away. And all of a sudden a family of five drives up in a super, in a, like a, a, a Griswold machine. So, and I stand in the street, and he stands in the street, and we look at each other across this long distance. I can't see his face. He's just a shadow. And I'm like, I'm in my bare feet. But I just wanted to sprint after this guy. But I just knew that it was not, it, it wasn't doable. And so he turned the corner, and it, and there was something in his body language, something in his energy that was just like, very much like, fuck you. Like, just super, it felt like, they felt like getting a glimpse of a serial killer to me because I've been listening to these bombs go off for a decade. And then one other time, a, a bomb went off in my neighborhood, like a, about two blocks away, but close enough that I knew where it happened. And I jumped out, put on my shoes, and ran the two blocks to that location. Again, huge cloud of smoke, stuff still floating in the air. And I was hoping that I was coming the direction that he was going, but there were, but I saw no one. And in that situation, there was somebody else that came out of their house, and we stood there and looked at each other in the street like, what the fuck? But I go on the internet and, and say, you know, like, who's setting off fucking bombs? In my, and, you know, there's so many NIMBYs and neighborhood activists and people that are on the internet like, there's barking dog in my neighborhood yeah right. but i can find nothing mm-hmm. about the mad bomber of south seattle <laughs> that's nothing. So, and that's so strange when that happens i feel like i'm a, I'm a crazy person like is no one else here these massive explosions i mean i don't think that he's ever it doesn't seem like he's ever hurt anybody i've never heard a police car it never feels like i should call the police because it's like well fait accompli the thing went off it's a guy in a black hoodies who knows just, Nobody... pr- just pranking everybody just pranking and where does he get these amazing bombs is another <laughs> thing i want to know <laughs> but so i went on the internet yeah and i googled soloed baseline of burden in my hand i wanted to hear the bass part because I felt like it was really the secret to the song. And, of course, it's there. It pops up, and I listen to it. And it is really hard to understand 
what is happening. Because soloed, it sounds very bad. It doesn't sound well played, mm-hmm. and it doesn't sound well thought out. It sounds kind of like Ben Shepard threw a bass down a flight of stairs. I'm listening right and now. It's got a kind of meandering, grungy feeling. The song or the bass line? The bass line. By itself. Yeah. Got a great tone. Well, even, you know, yeah, sort of. But there are a bunch of comments after the bass, afterwards on the YouTube. His sloppiness is part of his brilliance. Yeah, exactly. And then a lot of other people are like, this is an amateur garbage performance. Well, so then somebody in that comment thread posted a thing where they said, you need to listen to this in the context. And they posted a thing where the band is in the right channel and the bass is soloed in the left channel. Oh, okay. And listening to that even, you, I mean, at least I think... I get what he's doing. I get the bass part now. I understand where it lives, but I'm just surprised he didn't take another take. Like, I'm surprised that he didn't just try and go and get it a little better. Mm-hmm. And this was a record that they recorded at Bad Animals Studio. It must have been, you know, $1,500 a day in the studio. This is a major, major professional rock album. So it had to be intentional. Everything about it was intentional and when you listen to the track it not only works it works amazingly Mm -hmm. but there's nothing about the part that would suggest it if you were sitting in the studio and you soloed that bass part he kind of i mean he sounds i don't want to get get in trouble with this guy because he sounds like a tough guy it sounds a little bit like a uh, guitar player playing a bass part yeah and there are like weird hammer offs that just sort of you know, a lot of like, like like a root and a fifth, a root, a root and an octave, and a lot of sliding around. But it, it's just, sliding around, yeah, yeah, hammering and like just sort of fret noise and clanks and clonks. There are a lot of clanks and clonks. It's mm-hmm, not a mm-hmm. clean, it's not a clean take. Um, and I've really been chewing on that bass part, uh, for the last few weeks, sort of like. If you walk out of Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy, are you thinking about the movie afterwards? I'm still thinking about Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, where do you stand uh, as of now? The do, do you wish original? he'd done another take? Do I wish he had done another take? Yeah. Uh, no, because I think the track is perfect. Mm-hmm. When I listen to Burden in My Hand, I do not think, oh, I wish that this song was better. Like, I do feel within at least the Soundgarden style... It's um, it's a high watermark for Soundgarden. And yet I cannot, as a recordist and a person that's making rock albums, I cannot, I cannot picture myself in the studio as the guy, as the star of the band, listening to that bass take and saying, great, right. print it. And so it's another example, another piece of evidence that I'm missing something or, you know, that I, that, that there is a, that that's a form of perfection. But I mean, if it works for the song, it works, right? Well, but that's exactly right. And that's what we're saying about George Harrison. 
All right. But if you solo things, which is what you do in a studio, like you record the bass part live with the band, and then you go and you solo things to hear how they sound to make sure that they all line up and they work. Well, contrary to what you might imagine, listening to a song or an album, like for the early stages of that song, you're doing nothing but listening to solo soloed or grouped instruments like for a long you don't get to hear what the song really sounds like really for a long time you've probably heard that bass line you know numerous numerous times by itself yeah or, or with and you're the drums. listening you're listening to it with the drums right and you're saying does this does this work and even if it was working with the drums when you soloed it and you heard all the noise and the chaos uh, I cannot imagine that the people who were getting paid big, big dollars to do this had the the cleverness, I guess, to say that's done. Oh, I see. You know, because mm-hmm. they because I would assume that they would be trying to justify their enormous salaries by saying, "Let's do this fifty times until you get it right," and that's the somewhere in the chain. Either Ben Shepard was like, that's perfect, I'm not doing it again, which requires either tremendous confidence from him or tremendous fuck or the producer heard it and was like, I wouldn't change a thing, which mm-hmm. is super smart or like crazy smart. Or Chris Cornell is like, nope, that's our sound. I mean, somewhere somebody made a stand for that baseline, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I see. I see. And, and I don't see how you could make a stand about that particular part so all these little all these little breadcrumbs crumbs that that uh that the world leaves behind that if you're if you you find them you're walking through the forest and you find this and you Mm -hmm. pick it up and you look at and you go what's the story here how how does this acquit with my theory of how good things get made One of the reasons I was up late, I've been watching a lot of videos from this guy, Adam Neely, who has a a really, I think, a really good YouTube channel. Um, He's a bass player, a multi-instrumentalist, but mainly a bass player, and he's a teacher. He teaches music. And um, he did this thing. I think this is the right one. Are you familiar with the notion of Hockett? No. H-O-C-K-E-T. And it basically he lays out like with music and with showing you the notation, it's a little bit, it's kind of like, it's, it's where basically you break up the rhythm across multiple voices or instruments where there's like sort of a continuation and a coverage and you get this kind of strange like magical quality to having passing off the melody to different instruments. I mean, you hear a lot, you might hear it a lot in like, I'm guessing like, I want to say like bebop where like somebody will continue the line or something like that. But, but this right. is also like by design, you can, you write this in such a way that this voice starts at this, it hands off to this voice. Maybe there's a harmony, but it completes. And it's, but it's one of those things where like, I, I never, I have never given that much thought to something like this even existing, but like once it's explained to you, it's kind of a mind blower and you go back and you listen to stuff and you're like, wow, you would have to be so trusting of the people in this corral to attempt something like this. And I don't know if I'm describing it very well, but, but you, it's maybe a little bit, I want to say a little bit like a canon, but something where there might be some repetition, but you're like handing off in music. Hockett is the rhythmic linear technique using the alternation of notes, pitches, or chords 
Uh, it's a single melody shared between two or occasionally more voices, such that alternately one voice sounds while the other rests. Right. And one example he gives is, you know, that Daft Punk song. Faster, make it better, faster, stronger. You know, like where you're like passing, you're like, which you can do more easily electronically, I guess. But like, I don't know. I, I'm I'm still so interested in learning about this kind of stuff because then you go back and you listen to stuff again. And you're just like, this is like triply amazing to me now that somebody pulled this off. Yeah, yeah. I changed the, I changed the subject a little on you there. No, not at all. Not at all. I think that that is that's reality. That's multiple realities, right? Well, and 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 you say you say collaboration a lot, and I think it is it, it's important to hear the word collaboration over and over. It's important for me to think about collaboration. I am now. I don't want to give too much away. I don't want a spoiler alert. Oh no, I do want a spoiler alert. Okay. I don't want a spoiler. Okay, thank you. I don't want to alert. Mm. But I am embarking upon a new thing in multiple different venues where I am intentionally collaborating. That's been that's and been good at, for you in the past, hasn't it? It it has and I forget it over and over and because I think that what I want is to be left alone and I think that that it's, you know, like hard to collaborate and it is. Um but like that track that I sent to Amy that ended up on her record it wasn't exactly a pure collaboration in the sense that I wrote a thing and I sent it to her. There wasn't a bunch of back and forth. I sent it to her. She added her parts. It was a completed thing. And and so, but it did feel like I had to surrender this thing. I had written it. I was proud of it. I thought it was good. I had a very strong idea about where it should go. I handed it to her. She went where she wanted it to go, and it became an Amy Mann song because you don't give a song to Amy Mann and then have it be anything other, right? If she's going to use it, it becomes hers. And she did <laughs> she did an amazing work, right? She she wrote the bridge, which I think is a great bridge. Like she she made it hers. And I had to I had to say goodbye thing that I made. Right. Have a new life somewhere else. Go to college in a different town. Um, but it was it, and it wasn't easy because it's like. But I wanted to be the one that did everything. Right. That's that's what I do. Yeah, but it turned out great, and it lives in the world right now. And I, and it was a reminder: don't be precious. Make your thing. Hand it off. You know, you, you everything is a collaboration in that when you hand it off to the world, they add their two cents right like somebody else loving a thing and loving it in their own way it like adds to what the thing is that's a good way to put it so i'm collaborating now with two different people more broadly where i'm like let's do this together let's do this project together and boy merlin is it hard Mm -hmm. just to say that over and over because the person comes back and they're like great well i was thinking that i would put I would, you know, I would uh, call it Connecticut and put uh, whipped cream on it. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, that's not what I had in mind. I don't even know what you just said. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's going to be great. Connecticut. That's what we're calling it now. And, uh, but it has so far, I've, I've picked a couple of collaborators or they've picked me who are exciting 
and we're doing something that I wouldn't do otherwise. So, boy, I'm every day I'm I'm trying to wake up and say, you can't do this by yourself. Nothing good is going to come of you doing it by yourself. You have to, you have to live in the world. An interesting analog that jumps straight to mind as I as I read more <clears throat> stuff in like New York Times and Washington Post. I've subscribed to those and I read them a lot. Is I think about um, there's a writer I like a lot at the New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Um, I like her Twitter. I like when she's interviewed on shows, and I enjoy when she is on the byline. And frequently, she's not alone on the byline. These days, you, you know, with this fast news cycle and all this crazy stuff coming out and the leaks and everything, you know, she might be one of often two, uh, occasionally three, and sometimes many more people. And for some reason, that, that leaps to mind for me. Or maybe it's a little bit like the Wu-Tang Clan. I don't know. But like with her, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm... Because I know that because I like the stuff that she does, I could not tell you which sentence she wrote in this particular yeah. article, but but I know that I really I like her work, even when I can't identify which part it was that she made. And I'm not saying that works across the board for collaborations. Like you can tell, like John wrote that bridge. That was not a Paul bridge. That was a John bridge. Like you can tell those kinds of things. But I guess I'm just saying, like maybe that's one model to think about. Because there's a little hidden part in that that I think is interesting. Maggie Haberman is not going to spend four years to write one article. She's got to put stuff out every day, sometimes more than once a day. So that, it seems to me that the idea of having to produce, and I realize a, you know, a, a rock album is not the same thing as a news article, but I am saying that like the pressure to release often, combined with the need to have ad hoc short-term relationships with other people who do what you do, must make you pretty cool about you would have to get okay with how you collaborate with people. You couldn't spend five years at that job saying, no, I want the only byline on this. And I'm like, well, no, that's, that's not how this works. In this, in this economy and in this environment, like, this is how we produce news stories. But that, that, again, that, though, that pressure of like some, somebody, I don't know. And actually, I would love to be a fly on the wall for figuring out who gets assigned to what or who chooses what. But you take my meaning a little bit? Like, you, yeah. you get less, you, it seems like you would have to get less precious about whether it's good enough and ready enough. You have to get less precious about like putting your own ego aside. And I guess ultimately, maybe, you know, it could be an editor who's going to make those kinds of decisions. But did you see any um, analogy there? Well, yeah, I, and I, and honestly, when you put it that way, the way that they have to be thinking is that it's about the work. It's about this thing we'll eventually put out. We know there's going to be a story that's mostly about this topic or topics. It needs to come out in the next few hours. So how do we collapse on that? Yeah, right. And it it isn't, they're just not thinking about the, their, the credit. They're not thinking about their solo. Right. They're just like, my job is to put this out right. not to be remembered and and <laughs> consequently they that's, get remembered that's so difficult to do <laughs> so difficult i know i know oh the bastards but i mean also Gosh. just further on to music though um i'm trying to think like i don't know that much about like the personalities of the various jazz musicians but i mean you, th- you think about somebody like uh, Max Roach, for example, is one that comes to mm-hmm. mind. We're like, you know, I, I can't always identify every drummer on every Bop album, but I'm often, often as not, I am unsurprised to find out oh, that was totally Max Roach playing on that because he, he does have a certain style. But in, in jazz, like when you're in a small combo, uh, it's it seems like like just to even get noticed, 
to get noticed, to get invited up, like all the kinds of things that you would hope for when you're starting out. A huge piece of that is how well you play with others. And like, if you go up there your first day, is this your first day? You show up and you start when nobody else is even playing yet. Like you're going to, you're going to kind of get clocked as a loser. Like collegiality and listening and that kind of, as I say, collaboration, the, 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 maybe the ironic turns out part is that would make you very desirable to other people. Like you've got chops when you get your eight bars, but you're not stepping on everybody's stuff and you're not, you know what I mean? You know how to be classy on stage with other people and be supportive and then like respond to what they're doing in a way where you don't like wave your arms around and say, okay, everybody stop. This wasn't what I intended. I have a, I have a friend here in Seattle who is making a TV show and she has a, uh, she's the writer, uh, the head writer, and also the showrunner. And she has a writing staff that she has compiled from the ranks, right? People that wrote for Gracie and Frank, or people that wrote for My, my Own Private Idaho, or people that, I don't know, writers. All the great shows. <laughs> that have, uh, that have their own, that have, you know, that have credits. Yeah. And she said, I was talking to her the other day. We went to a baseball game, and she said, you know, normally what happens, a person in my position, they have this team of writers that have been put together to write their show, and everybody writes and writes and writes, and we all write script, and then I would put my name on it, and they would be being paid to do this work. Like Lena Dunham and, um, is it Joss Whedon? Who's her collaborator? Uh, um, uh, I don't know. What's, the, uh, like another writer on Girls? Uh, yeah, well, a producer of Girls. Um, oh, yeah, there's a dude, like, right? Yeah, famous guy, a film film person. Okay. Mo- movie person. Maybe he made Superbad or 40-Year-Old Virgin oh, or something. Oh, is it Judd Apatow? Apatow. Yeah. Apatow. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the entire season, all the seasons of those shows, those two, I think, may- and maybe with one other person, are credited with having written all the shows. I've heard that they wrote almost all of them. Yeah. And but there is a writing staff, right? There are people that are writers that are working on the show. There uh and those writers are writing, but they're not they're not they don't take the ultimate credit for the script. And uh and my friend who is making this TV show said, "You know what I did? I ended up just giving each one of my writers a a script, you know, they're going to, we're all going to write just like a normal TV show, but I'm going to give each one of them the credit for it because I don't need that. Like I'm a successful person. I don't need to also own all the scripts. Even though that person as the showrunner will have a heavy influence on how it gets edited and implemented. Oh, for shizzle. And she'll have the final edit, the final writing. Uh, she'll, she will do that work. Mm-hmm. She just won't take the credit. And she said, you know, if you get a script, it's an extra freaking $50,000 to this person. That's really like, cool. Yeah. Why be greedy? But she said, one of the writers, you know, all, everybody on this, on this show has multiple credits of TV shows, except for this one young playwright that she hired, who was, you know, some fresh out of college gal from, you know, some college mm-hmm. who's a talented young playwright and, and she's on the writing staff. And I, and, and by this description, I imagine that she's pretty young, right? Early, early to mid twenties, not having worked in television before, not having been a part of a writing staff, but just somebody that was writing plays. And, uh, 
And my friend described her as like, she knows exactly what to do in the writing room, which is to not say anything until there is a time for her to say something. And then when she says something, it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. She waits for her shot. And I was like, "Mm, well done. And so my friend said, I'm giving her a script too, which no one can believe, right? That's just not because this person's such a noob in this medium. Yeah. It's just not done. You know, like this person's 25, you don't give them a script. Um, but like she earned it by knowing her job, right. By not being the one that was standing on the table, like, no, 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 no. Right. Right. But by being, by being consistently good and also knowing how to be patient. So, I mean, that show is in development, and I have my fingers crossed about it. But but that kind of glimpse into a world where it also requires that that my friend who is not, you know, above, like, wanting to be known and make money and, and, uh, and be a famous person is able to say, like, the collaborative nature of this is important enough to it getting done that there should also be some acknowledgement and some reward um, that's also like spooned out to everybody because these people are working their butts off. And even though they're lucky to be here, yeah, it doesn't mean that, that they should, that they should have to pay to play. What kind, of, what kind of show work. is it just generally? Is it like um, a drama? Uh, oh, you know what? I don't know why I'm being so coy about it. Um, my friend is Maria Semple, mm-hmm. who wrote uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And two things are currently in development. One of them is um, a film being made of Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Which is being made. And... I think that uh, Maria has sort of had she had her input into it and now has sort of stepped away from the making of the film. She's not like uh, a daily presence on the film. But there's also a television show that is being developed. So it's oh, look at that. It is. I don't know. Listening to Maria talk about it. It is like until the show is on the air, you cannot be confident Oh yeah, uh, shows, <laughs> right. shows. You know they'll 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 spend a hundred million dollars making a show, and then at the last minute just decide to pull it and put on ABC's Wide, wide World of Sports. Um, what in but, the Wide World of Sports? <laughs> Quite a cash you got for the movie. You got Kate Blanchett, uh, Kristen Wiig, mm-hmm. Judy Greer, Billy Crudup. You got uh, Doctor Manhattan. Yes. yes, right. Big Penis Man. Mm, big Penis. Big Blue Penis Man. Yeah. Big Blue Penis Man. Um. Yes, it's a great cast, and and then the TV show also is pretty extraordinary. Um, but I, I'm guessing that there's nothing. Oh well, there there's the article right there. So it's something I don't have to. It's in the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Julia Roberts is playing Maria Semple. Oh my! In the in the television show that they are developing, and. Um, the show, uh, and it's about her second book, or her the, her follow up to Where'd You Go, Bernadette, called Today Will Be Different, which is on, at your local bookstore on sale now. Uh-huh. Um, so Julia Roberts, it's very unusual 
I mean, even for me to have a friend who is being played by Julia Roberts on a TV show. You don't get that. More than also, four, you don't get that more than maybe four or five times in your life, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Like sitting in a baseball game talking about a TV show that is where Julia Roberts is is the, you know, the star. Um, but Maria is show running the show in addition to having uh, written the book. And in addition to being the kid, the main character of the TV show, and God, am I getting some lessons about collaboration? Um, it's just really heavy to watch how much work has to go into making this thing, and how much self-effacement has to happen. How much like stepping back and saying, um, in order to make this big thing work, I have to let I have to let people do their job. Oh God. I, I can only imagine. I can o- I can only imagine. There must be so much stuff where you have to make a pretty fast decision about, well, am I going to make a big deal out of this? Would be one. Another one would be, if this does happen, how likely is this thing to happen? Right? And if it does happen, like, what are the likely consequences? And you start doing a little bit of, like, thinking, you know, chess style, a little bit ahead. But I, I just, I can't even imagine. And you got, the whole time, you got to stay cool and keep your powder dry. Yeah. Are I got you, are so much to learn. Are you acquainted with the writer Elizabeth Gilbert? You've met her, um, haven't you? I, I have met Elizabeth Gilbert. She and I have uh, have spent some time together. Okay, yes. so now you know two people uh, portrayed by uh, Julia Roberts in a, fo- in a film. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, that's two. Uh, we should probably look into this, see if there's any others you know. There could be tons do more. You th- do you think this is a situation where in the rest of my life there will be two more people that I know who I think are there will por- be portrayed least- by Julia Roberts? Uh, I think there will be at least one more, clearly. Wow. Do you think maybe I will ever be portrayed by Julia Roberts in a film? Mm-hmm. Probably. Like a fictionalized version of me? I think it would probably be Tilda Swinton playing Julia Roberts playing you. I think it might have some layers. Uh-huh. It might be It might be a South Korean movie. I think it's going to have a lot of layers to it. And uh, yeah, and there's no question. I think that still counts. You, you think know? it might be like a Bing Jong Mal- Malkovich situation where people are just like Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich? I never saw that whole movie. I own it on DVD and I've still never seen the whole thing. Huh. Who, who else do we know here? She wants a full frontal. Boy, she's been in a lot of movies. Look at that. She has. She's uh, she's a good actress and um, yeah. Maria speaks highly of her, you know. Um, you know, who knows? It's a whole Maybe we'll all go different... to a baseball game. <laughs> or, a, or a movie. Um, there, mm-hmm. It's a whole, maybe they'll come by in their van and pick you up. But it's such a whole different set of skills. It's, it's one reason I am so reluctant to utterly poo-poo the experience one gets from team sports and being in the military. Um, because, uh, you know, if you've made it through film school, for example, you've almost certainly had to collaborate with people. But, you know, you're collaborating probably mostly with other students, but the the skills that made you good at what you are as a musician, a rock musician, as a stand-up comic, as there's all kinds of things where you can hone elements of what you do, even publicly, kind of mostly by yourself. Not always true. Comedians have people write jokes for them. You know, obviously if you're if you're the director, you also gotta have a cinematographer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like it's um it's like so many jobs, it may, the full weight of what's involved in what you're doing may not be fully upon you until you're like getting ready to go into production, where like you may realize. And again, I mean, you get that because you've had successes in the past, but it is, it's kind of weird 
you think about somebody like Herb Alpert. Or like Herb Alpert, I think, started primarily as a trumpet player. And then he became like a trumpet player with a band. And then he became a trumpet player with a band who would sometimes sing not very well. And then fast forward just a little bit, and he's the guy who started A&M Records. Right? And yeah, there's that, that kind of classic celebrity refusenik idea of the person who's always taking every job to get the next higher up level job. But like some people just want to be implementers. Some people, I don't want to say just be a cinematographer because there's a lot to that, but there's a lot of practitioners who like the piece of the pieces of the puzzle that they're responsible for. They don't, they don't want to be the showrunner necessarily, mm. you know? And I, I wonder, I wonder, I don't know. There are some people who just seem like wonderkind where you're like, you know, they've done one thing and now they're getting all these offers and they keep, you look at somebody like, I was going to say Damon Lindelof, but especially Noah Hawley, the guy who did um, Fargo and Legion. And like, he's doing so many things and it just seems like he, he, uh, he just never misses a, a pitch. But, well, uh, but I, those, there's a, there's people skills at the heart of all of those kinds of jobs. And like, it seems like there's always this potential disaster. If you try to move into an increasingly people centric job, when you are primarily a gifted and mercurial practitioner, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get it a little bit that, you know, uh, for years and years, right. We've talked about intelligence as being not a single thing, right? The first time somebody said, oh, um, that person has emotional intelligence, I remember thinking that it was a kind of a revolutionary thought technology, like, oh, right. Yeah. That had, no one had ever spoken that idea before, and now we have the concept of emotional intelligence to work with. Yeah. You know, we, we had street smarts, but street smarts, you know, didn't, clearly wasn't being discussed as a kind of intelligence as much as it was a kind of smarts. <laughs> Just the use of the word smarts uh, took some of the power away. But now we think of intelligence as being this, you know, this multifaceted thing. And you can have the mathematical intelligence or you can have a lot of different kinds of intelligence. Well, like if you, if you, but, see, if you observe people in your life whose skill with something seems not only impossibly easy they seem impossibly competent but like it's if it feels like magic to you that somebody is capable of that there's probably some chance that they have an x fill in the blank intelligence that you lack and 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 i think my and maybe this is from my era or just maybe this is natural but i always think of them as being smarter somehow how is joss wheaton capable of all this got to be smarter mm-hmm Somehow. And so I, I don't know if we talked about this last week, but I just met Tavi Gevinson. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. And what was what stood out about her was that she was very smart, like clearly a very, very smart person. But over time, I've met a lot of people who are very accomplished and it isn't their smartness that stands out, right? I mean, John Hodgman is smart. Maria Semple is smart. They're very smart. Yeah. But it's not like they are unnaturally smart or smart to a point where you can, where their accomplishment can be attributed to their smartness. And Tavi is young and not, not, she can't possibly have the experiences that an older person has had, but, and she's very smart clearly but there's something else and it's this it is this quality of being 
um, it's the self-possession or whatever, whatever that Neil Young, young Neil Young feeling is where they just are following their own star, but without, without a lot of Jim Morrison trappings, you know, it's just when something comes onto their desk, they have a, they have a skill of being able to say, this isn't what I'm doing. This just isn't what I'm doing, this thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that. Everything came on my desk, and I was like, maybe I'll be a Shakespearean actor. And there wasn't a thing in my head that was like, mm, no, that's not what you're doing. You're not doing a Shakespeare thing in life. And so I spent however many hours, however many daydream hours, imagining Shakespeare, imagining that I would do Shakespeare. <laughs> and, you know, maybe burned a lot of time. Yeah. Did I lose you? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I don't know. I mean, this is one of those things that is, it's a little bit of an obsession for me. I don't know. I've said so much about this so many places, but it still continues to dog me is the, the incredible gulf between how it feels like in your terms when you put your hands around it. The incredible gulf between the idea of doing something and what happens when you actually have to do that thing. And, you know, when we say have to, you're committed to that. There's like, there's a budget and there's a timeline and all that kind of stuff. But just it's, uh, it can sometimes be so shocking. Um, yeah, I, I hate to repeat myself, but no, I, I do still, I do still really obsess. And, and, and like you, I think I, I, I want to be left alone, but like, it's, it's beneficial to be pushed into situations with other people, whether that's encouraging my daughter to get over her shyness and order her own food or for me to be saying, okay, I'm going to reach out to this person and try to do a podcast episode with them. I mean, it's not my natural impulse at all. And, and given the varying intelligences of other people, I look at somebody or you, you know, you suddenly meet somebody and you're like, wow, I can feel like I can tell a little bit why you're so good at your job. Like you really, you really get this in a way you get this on a molecular level because you've done this a lot and because you understand that people are part of the process. And I, I admire that and I'm stunned by that. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I mean, the fact that you reached out to me however many years ago and explained to me what the internet was. And then after explaining to me what the internet was, you explained that there were other people on the other side of the internet. And after I asked a few questions about that, that you patiently answered, then you said, <laughs> and I said, why would a band want to be on the internet? And you were very patient with me and explained some of the reasons why a band might want to be on the internet. And then you said, I want to do a podcast. And then you patiently explained what that was. A lot of layers. And uh, and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and now we've been doing this podcast for uh, 40 years. Mm-hmm, 40 years. And it really has. There have been times when this podcast was the thing that kept me in the world. Mm-hmm. It was the one thing I was doing that that was collaborative and interactive and and outside of myself, dependent dependent on someone else not just doing work but on that someone else being into it mm-hmm. right like bringing their own um their not just their 
their participation, but their, their, uh, I mean, like the love of doing it enough to do it. And I never would have thought, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, we knew a lot of people 10 years ago that we still know, but we don't know very well anymore. And we knew those people as well as we knew each other then. But you and I know each other now still because we do this. And yeah, I mean, I, w I wish it wasn't as depressing to say this out loud, as depressing as it sounds and actually is. But like a lot of this is this is an opportunity for me to have regular meetings with friends of mine. I mean, honestly, that, that, this, this show in particular, that was kind of, you know, I don't like to talk about the show on the show, but that is kind of legitimately yeah. how it started was that this, but you know, what's it wasn't on the something, show is on the show. whatever's in the show is in the show. It wasn't like we had to say, well, let's come up with a topic list and hope we can figure out something to say. And, um, yeah, I, um, you know, I don't know. I, I know I don't do it enough and I don't do it well, but I, I, I admire the people who do. I love other people's well, intelligence. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should start a band. Oh, my dad's got a barn. <laughs> my dad's got a killer set of tools. <laughs> you gonna play the chainsaw? no, I'm gonna set. I'm gonna set off. My job is gonna be to set off one stick of dynamite every fourteen days, <laughs> and then skulk around the corner. <laughs> See you, bitches. <laughs> That's my role in the band. Out of here. Laughed.